This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Troy Swanson, sitting in for Steve Thomas. My guests today are Michelle Lutala and Jacqueline Whiting, who are co-authors of the book News Literacy, The Keys to Combating Fake News, published by Libraries Unlimited. Jacqueline Whiting is a library media specialist at Wilton High School in Wilton, Connecticut. Michelle Lutala is a library department chair at New Canaan High School in New Canaan, Connecticut. Circulating Ideas is made possible through the support of listeners just like you. Michelle and Jackie, welcome to the show, and thank you for talking to me. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to have this conversation with you. It's great to be here, Troy. Thank you. You know, I wanted to talk to you about my ongoing series on fake news and libraries because of your book. And I, I think, number one, it's very practical and it's very, uh, you know, if you're an instructional librarian, there's good lessons. There's a lot that you can bring. But I think also in public libraries can translate over fairly easily. So let me just start with a general question. You know, when it comes to media literacy, how are we doing? That's a really potent question. And I think it's um, increasingly so because you noted the relevance of the, the public libraries, because ultimately this is really about having civil civic discourse and having informed civil civic discourse. And I think in terms of educators, we're in a place where I don't want to say everyone, but maybe we can now say everyone has recognized that there's a real critical need for these kinds of skills. And yet many educators might be afraid to be taking ownership of this kind of instruction. Um, Maybe they don't know how to approach it, or maybe they're lacking confidence in their own media literacy and fear the errors that might cascade from that. Um, So there are pockets of really cool things that are happening, and groups like SHEG, the Stanford History Education Group, um, the News Literacy Project, they are producing and releasing for free to educators really high quality material that can be used in in classrooms, Um, but there really isn't widespread implementation yet. And ideally, this kind of learning has to happen in an embedded way. It has to be melded with the content that students are already studying so that these media literacy skills, news literacy skills, and the habits of mind for being media literate are a part of how a student interacts with information just as they go through their day, right? And this is where the library media specialist rule becomes essential, right, Michelle? Right. So I I think this is what Jackie says is so true that we have definitely come to terms with the fact that we have almost a digital literacy crisis um, and media literacy is really critical and it should be embedded. All of these things are absolutely true. The question is, how does this happen? And I think that if you, you know, if you look at teachers and what has been thrown at them for the last 12, 15 years, Um, that feels new and that they really didn't feel that they were trained for. Um, There are so many expectations and new mandates um, from the state, from the federal government, from their own schools, from their own districts in terms of accountability, um, teacher evaluation. There's, you know, now we have NGSS and we, the Common Core and ISTE and AASL and the content standards. There's so much that they really need to be responsible for that at, when, anytime you say, well, we also need to think about media literacy, and that can just sort of put them over the edge. So the really important piece to this is to have a professional expert in every building that can really help facilitate this learning. And I think that this is happening at the exact time that we're seeing the elimination of school, library, of school librarians 
from buildings. They're being cut, the positions are cut. In the state of Connecticut alone, I just did a super informal survey a few weeks ago, 200 positions have been eliminated from school libraries in the state of Connecticut, which is the second highest per capita earning state in the country. And if you think about how, you know, how that sort of multiplies out across the nation, I think we're at a critical need place and also where we're having a crisis of personnel to actually facilitate this learning. And, I, and not to derail our conversation, but my guess would be they're being cut in the places that need them most, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Can, you had mentioned, um, Jackie, uh, Shag, Shag and the News Literacy Project. Can you tell mm-hmm. us just a little bit more about, you know, where we could hunt that down. I'm sure, I'm sure, sure a Google search would, would help, but. Absolutely. A Google search would help. Um, Sheg, the Stanford History Education Group, um, people who have talked with Michelle and I in the past know we talk all about their kind of watershed report in, in 2016. Um, and that report is really what kind of kickstarted this K-12 movement and particularly a high school movement and a college movement for developing media literacy skills. And the ongoing work of that group is to support educators in tackling it. So exactly, a, a, quick, a, a quick Google search can take you right to the Stanford History Education Group where they have all sorts of tool sets, five-minute lessons, longer lessons that teachers can pick and choose because the content of the media literacy lesson matches really well with the content of the class that they're teaching. Uh, the title of the report is... Oh. I'm drawing a blank on the first part, but it's the cornerstone of online, online civic reasoning. Yes, online right? civic reasoning. Yes, <laughs> which is a mouthful, and it's really hard to remember, but it's worth remembering because it is an outstanding report. Excellent. Uh, so, in the book, you note the difference between reading online and reading in print, and uh, you say. So, let me read back your own writing to you here. Educators should embrace teaching the skills necessary to read well in a digital environment rather than refusing to allow the digital world into their classrooms. Reading in a, web, in a web-based rather than printed text environment requires students to develop information literacy skills specific to that medium, skills that go beyond traditional printed text literacy strategies. Can you talk about this difference for us? Help us unpack it a little bit? Absolutely. Um, hyperlinked reading material to me, is the ultimate choose-your-own-adventure story in information consumption. It's so different than that linear, very contained text that I experienced as a K-12 student. And some people, I think, become frustrated at the opportunities for digression from a text when it is filled with hyperlinks. And if we reframe how we look at that text, what it actually is, is an incredible opportunity for personalization and for content enrichment, for learning enrichment. And it's at the hands of the students. And we have to be cognizant of that when we present material to students and not remove from them those learning opportunities. At the same time, we have to teach them to write the same way. Publishing has changed dramatically. And there's so much online publishing, so much quality online content. Students need to learn how to generate, not just consume that kind of hyperlinked content. Um, I think that the other thing that's important for, for people to acknowledge is the Pew Research study that came out about a year and a half ago, where they had surveyed teenagers across the United States in all sorts of facets of their digital connectedness. One of the questions they asked was, what is your preferred online platform? 
and they left it very open like that. And the students' top three responses were YouTube, Instagram, and Snapchat in that order. And what's really key about that is that we have to acknowledge all three of these are really highly visual platforms. When students seek information, when students want to communicate with other people, or when they're simply looking to be entertained, they're watching video, they're deconstructing images. They are the meme generation, and we have to embrace that about them. If we're paying attention, this has tremendous implications for how educators curate learning materials. And I defer to Michelle, who is an expert on curation. Well, it's it's really it's it's kind of an amazing thing because I what I find student what I find teachers saying is well you know you know I'm in a BYUD environment and our teachers a lot of them really say oh but I hate having them use the computers for reading I really like to have them read in print and I just keep thinking you know what that's professionally responsible because of what Jackie just said so it's really important to really get kids to come to terms with all the possible formats that they're using in their other lives, right? Not in their school life, but in their other life. And we need to use the school life to educate them on how to really make that processing work. So, I mean, in terms of curation, you know, we can collect different formats of same content in different in the same portal, so we use our our our, our OPAC, our online catalog, in order to create to basically archive those materials. We use LibGuides in order to archive those materials and make them accessible to students in different contexts. But then we also embed in many of those contexts um, additional resources to sort of help them be hyper analytical and really think through and articulate what it is that they're seeing and be able to do that deconstruction. I I really do think that teachers have a responsibility to do not what is easy, but what is correct and what is really going to benefit our learners in the long run. And sometimes that means that you need to step out of your own comfort zone with print and really sort of embrace the, the digital experience. I think it's important that educators bring an understanding by design mindset to what they're doing in their classrooms and not impose upon a class their comfort zone or their level of familiarity with a particular media format and provide a range of media so that students, when they can self-identify, I'm reading this, something's not making sense, have an option of another way to encounter and wrestle with that same content. Even if it means ultimately they're going to return to the written text, they've had alternate opportunities for really making meaning of the content, because ultimately that's our goal. We want them to be informed, critical thinkers, and they can't be if they can't access the information because it's only provided to them in one way. Kind of call it format format triangulation. <laughs> so it's not informational triangulation, it's just format triangulation um, so that they get to ingest it in many ways. Well, it, it gives me so many ideas. And I mean, especially with the conversations about deep fakes going on, right, where, you know, mm -hmm. people can mm -hmm. manipulate video to their needs or to just, you know, transform video that doesn't even exist to say whatever they want. I mean, our students may be more prepared to deal with some of that than we are. It's interesting that, that they may be more equipped to recognize it than we are, but only if they have the habit of mind to pause and consider what they are consuming. They may be technically aware 
of what's possible to a greater extent than we are, but they don't yet have the mindset that says, I have to bring that knowledge I have about how content is created to the content that I'm consuming. And that's, that's where we are really, really critical in helping them to develop that mindset because it really is a mindset. And then it filters into all of their, all of their life and all of their experience when we aren't there to guide them. Well, you know, I'm very interested in the ways uh, to help students explore their own worldview, kind of make that explicit and how that impacts their learning and their use of information. Uh, In the book, you offer a range of lessons for teachers. And one of them is called, what is my bias? Can you tell me about this? So this lesson actually arose when Michelle and I were co-librarians together and we were working with a Um, group of 10th grade English teachers who were doing a unit on op-eds. And the the impetus for this is the the understanding that bias is a part of any source of information. You know, the student who comes and says, can you help me find an unbiased text is really distressed when the response is, no, I can't because there is no such thing, right? So when we're talking about about bias in a text, we're really talking about the degree of transparency of the bias. And when, when a text is laden with supercharged words or supercharged images, when bias is obvious, we're not challenged to, to recognize it and, and deal with it. It's when language is subtle that we're inclined to miss bias. And so when we're working with students, it's these subtle texts that we really have to, have to, to, to conquer, um, have to take on. And the exercise that, that uh, we created looks like a Mad Libs on the surface. And it was created by taking a paragraph from an op-ed essay that was on the same content that the students had already been studying. And we removed from the paragraph verbs and adjectives, words that that would would connote action or description. And then what we said to the students is fill in the blank so the paragraph is cogent, make it make sense again. And once they were kind of coming to the end of that exercise, we said, okay, now partner up with another person or two other people. And as a small as a pair or a trio, you now have to agree on what word fills the blank. And this is where the exercise got harder for the students because they started getting into this dynamic where they were each trying to convince the other that their word was better, which meant that organically what they were doing was discussing the subtle connotations of language. And some groups started skipping words because they just couldn't come to agreement. Other groups said, well, we'll put two words in that spot. And then they would get to the next spot and realize, well, now they were stuck because without making a choice at the beginning of the sentence, they couldn't move on. So these are students who many of them had been together in school for years. They live in similar neighborhoods. They take multiple classes together. And now what they're starting to see is that language impacts meaning and that their choices of words are starting to indicate subtle and maybe even unconscious beliefs that they have. And what they start to realize is that people that they presumed had the same worldview as them really have different points of view. And then beyond that, what they start to realize is what they used to think was fact might actually have been opinion. And so at that point, we start to drill down into one sentence. And when we're doing that, we now are comparing what the students wrote with what the author of the original text wrote. 
And students, and we've done this with adults too, and they come to the same realization. The choice of verbs that they use is determining to whom they grant agency in a situation. When you describe someone as struggling to do something versus working to do something, you're saying something really different about that person's agency and skill set and, and the, the respect that's afforded what it is they're trying to accomplish. And when you start having this conversation, what you're starting to do is have really powerful discussions about the role of implicit bias in our lives and in our learning. Also, you know, one of the things that kids come into, and this is where this lesson is so important, is they, they come into very often a research task saying, I already know what I want to say. And so they look for materials that actually confirm their bias uh, rather than actually participate in a research process. And, and so I think that that's where we're going next with this is that there are fundamental elements to a research process that students will tend to buy, try to bypass as many of those as possible in order to just confirm what it is that they already believe. I mean, just developmentally speaking, they are so egocentric. They really just want to like, they just want to validate what they feel. And so they will look, they will seek that information. So this kind of an activity is essential in trying to get them to build that empathy that will so, will get them out of their own head and their own ego. With the, uh, my bias lesson, I mean, do they come out of it thinking that if everything has its own biases, that they lose trust in everything. Like I feel that uh, Farhad Manju has a, a you know, the, a term called the Photoshop effect, where once you mm -hmm. know images can be photoshopped, you don't trust any images ever again anymore, right? Is that a fear that we should have when we approach this? So I don't think that the issue is being fearful of the information. I think that ultimately it becomes really liberating to realize that bias is just a part of how we live our life. Based on my environment, my prior media exposure, by the pieces of my identity that I can't change, all of that affects how I take in information, how I make meaning of it, and then what meaning I convey to people. And so what understanding your own bias in order to understand someone else's bias does in the perfect world is it actually improves communication because now I'm starting to demonstrate, I'm starting to, to experience empathy for the creators of the information I'm consuming. And I'm, I'm purposefully helping other people have empathy with my experience so that we understand point of view. And once we understand point of view, we're having improved dialogue. At the heart of the inquiry process, we want our kids to question everything, not not debunk, not say, not like debunk everything, but just question sure. everything. And so there's an element to what you're saying that is good, right? Because they will question everything, but we don't want them to dismiss everything because clearly that's counterproductive. Michelle, you had mentioned um, the kind of research process. Could you talk about the stages? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I had an epiphany. I did a I did a, a webinar on design thinking in May, and I realized, oh my gosh, I have a huge missing gap in my research model. So our, our research model, um, basically, it's called Wiser, and it's I didn't make it up. I actually it was inspired by a whole bunch. Most of most importantly, I think was Barbara Stripling's. Um, I looked at a lot of guided inquiry models that sort of span the age ranges, and this is the one that I sort of. I compiled them into this one, but wiser um, is you wonder, 
um, you know, explore, it would be another way to say that, um, then, then you investigate, uh, synthesize, express, and then reflect. And what really bugged me when I sat down and started thinking about trying to figure out how design thinking models actually intersect um, was there's no opportunity for revision in that model. And so somewhere between express and reflect has to be the revision process. And if we don't actually explicitly articulate that in, in a research process, then teachers are going to bypass that step altogether. So one of the things we do at New Canaan High School is we give kids an opportunity to submit their, um, their, race, their list of references, so their bibliographies, which is so much more than just a bibliography because it's really telling us, you know, here is a chronicle of my research process um, in alphabetical order. And <clears throat> so we can give them feedback on that, but barring the opportunity to have a cushion of time between the time that they submit it to me and they have to submit it to the teacher, um, that that the exercise is pretty pointless, right? So we can give them all the feedback we want. It's not affecting their grade. We're just saying, hey, you also, you, you know, you've got four, too many resources that are referenced and you have too many people, too many resources that weigh too heavily over here. And you really just haven't de delved deep enough. And you should probably add something that says this um, to make sure that you have balanced lists of resources for your research. So that is really an essential part of it to give them a chance to sort of get some feedback and then go back and fix the problem rather than here's your feedback and now submit it. And so I, I think that building that into the research model, I think that I'm going to go from a five step. I don't know. I have to, I have to convince our, our whole district to go and come along with me, um, but to build that in. And really it was through the investigation and the comparison and looking for intersection with design thinking that I was able to sort of uh, realize that we had a huge gap. My exposure to design thinking came uh, came about through the Google Innovator Academy and um, I have found it to be a, a transformational in how to approach working with students, how to approach working with colleagues, how to approach designing units and designing lessons. And it is that that empathy with the stakeholder, empathy with the person who with whom you are working, for whom you are working. And as Michelle said, that that reflective piece that allows you to iterate, sometimes rapidly iterate, um, in order to better meet meet needs as they are identified. That is so critical in arriving at a final product that actually is the, the fruitful product of all that, all that questioning, all of that learning and all of that, that reflection and does satisfy the needs of the people you're trying to serve. It's funny, one of the, what Jackie just pointed out, one of the things that's at the heart of most, most of the design thinking models, of course, is empathy. And what's at the heart, in my mind, of, of the inquiry model is, is questioning. But the goal, the outcome of inquiry is actually to build empathy, right? If you're, if you're questioning everything and you're really wrapping your head around it and you're developing a new idea that emerges from a body of research, then wow, you're going to have a whole new outlook on whatever it is that you were questioning in the first place. I feel like there's so many areas pushing toward the goal of empathy and also that connected to reflection, right? So I'm hearing that in the, the critical pedagogy conversations that, that's happening within information literacy. A lot of the psychology research that's looking at fake news and how mm -hmm. we understand is also recognizing like how we have to be reflective of ourselves and then connecting that um, to others. So I think 
Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to me, and it seems like you know this is the right direction for all of us um, in the classroom working with students for sure. You know, if if you go back to the '50s and the origin of the, the this I believe program, it it actually came out of this sense that we are becoming disconnected people, and the airing of the this I believe very short essays was about helping us to see a little bit of ourselves in other people and begin to foster bonds with people that we may think we have nothing in common with, with that person and to, to grow a, a community again. Um, and I, I think we're seeing that same thing, just maybe it's new language and, and it's happening in a different context because it's a digital context now, but that the, the human need for empathy is it's, it's not new and it's, I'm glad that it's pervasive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, connected to this kind of shift in environment, we're hearing a lot about fact checking. And one of the other lessons that caught my eye in the book among many is there, you had a lesson on fact-checking and building student um, fact-checking skills. Um, could you tell us a little about that? Michelle, do you want to start with a little shout-out to Joyce for this? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, it, right around the time that the Shag study came out, which was November of 2016, uh, J- Dr. Joyce Valenza, who teaches at Rutgers but had, was a longtime school library pr- practitioner, um, wrote a fabulous piece in her blog, Never Ending Search, um, for School Library Journal, that really was a, a power packed toolkit and she lists i can't even qu- n- enumerate them all but a, a plethora of resources that teachers and and librarians can go to and students can go to to really start check fact checking their sources i know that one of the sources that i really do appreciate and i'm not saying that everything that they do sort of delivers um there is no delivers a perfect like, you know, I'm looking for floaties and they don't, they aren't out there. The floaty is in your brain. And that's where we really have to be critical fact checkers. There, there is no floaty. There is no surefire way to, or go-to resource that's going to help you d- d- basically uncover the reality uh, and see the truth because the truth has to really originate from your own head. And, but I do like all sides a whole lot. Um, and because they look at th- three different sources, um, you know, the, the far, the, the left, the, the right, and, and then they come, come to some conclusions on their own in, in between. Um, I like the research that they do. I, I, I like their social media posts. I, I think that really they, they really try their goal, their mission is, is solid. And I think that they do an excellent job. Jackie, I know you have a lot of favorites also. Yeah. And, and I've got to say the other thing about all sides that I love is their dictionary, Mm. because when we're talking about bias and we're talking about the power of language, their dictionary is a really awesome tool for students or educators to really understand the meaning of the words that they're using and the connotations of that language and become sensitive to what someone may hear when I'm using this word, which may not be something that I realized I was conveying. It may not be my, my intention. So I think that's a, another really powerful and tool. That's all, all um, sides.com, right? All sides.com. What I really liked about, about Joyce's post um, was that she, she pointed out six critical ways that news News, dis- news creation and news dissemination has changed 
um, for digital between you know the digital immigrant and the digital native. These six changes are are key. Um, news isn't delivered once a day; it's twenty four seven now. That you know we used to have weekly magazines or weekly newspapers, but now we have streaming media, which is which is very different. Um, we used to trust our investigative journalists to debunk hoaxes, but we've had people pose as journalists perpetrating hoaxes. That journalism was a profession that, you know, you went to a, a, a credentialed school, you went to a highly regarded school, you learned journalistic ethics. It was a credentialed profession. And now we have, we have citizen journalists and there's, there's danger to that and there's value to that. Um, that also that we have to think about the impact of echo chambers and filter bubbles with our, our liking and our reposting and our perceptions of what it means when someone likes something that we post. And finally, we have to think about media ownership and what influence the owner of a media company has on the information that company happens to be disseminating. So the lesson that you referenced actually came from having students identify their go-to news source. And your go-to news source can't be a news aggregator. So we're not talking about Google News or Yahoo News or even all sides, but go right to the, the creator of the information you consume and then examine what the news from that source looks like across multiple platforms. So for example, I can go into a classroom and bring today's print edition of the New York Times that was dropped on the front steps of the school at you know 6.30 in the morning. Um, the student may have the New York Times app on their phone where they're getting a, a feed through that app. Uh, they may read the New York Times website online going to nytimes.com. Or they may subscribe to the New York Times feed through Facebook or Inst or Snapchat or something like that, and they be they may be reading the news there. And the exercise then is comparing what are the top stories at any given point of day. When was that story last revised or updated? Um, what kind of comments are being posted on that story? What kind of feedback is being associated with that story? So they start to become more cognizant of not just my source of information matters, but my source of information combined with my means of accessing that source also is going to influence what it is that I'm seeing, reading, watching, unpacking, and understanding. Another level to that would be to take an article and then from that from that publication and then view it in a database where all of the imagery is stripped out and see if that changes the meaning or relevance of that of that same article um you know there was an art there was a piece back in 2012 so this is the election of 2012 so a really long time ago i i remember listening to a piece on npr uh, uh, this is sort of just, just an example of what Jackie's talking about in terms of, you know, old school journalism versus new school journalism, uh, where the, a group of reporters were asked to reread an old standard text from journalism school. Um, it was called Boys on the Bus, and it was about the 1972 elect, uh, presidential election campaign. And so they were revisiting it here 40 years later, um, where they were trying to figure out, you know, what's still the same, what's different. And so there was a moment in the interview where some of the uh, some somebody said, well, so, you know, back in 72, we realized, you know, everybody would turn to somebody and say, hey, how what's the lead today? And so whoever was at the front of the bus would sort of say it's going to be this. And uh, Stevenski turned to the rest of the, the, the participants and said, so 
does that still happen? And they all kind of fumbled around for a little bit and said, actually, no, I, I think we've turned to Twitter for that. <laughs> and I think that that's a really, we are at a very different place in terms of journalism. So I thought that was an interesting illustration. I love that piece. So fantastic. It, that whole, the whole conversation is so like Marshall McLuhan too, right? Like the, the medium is the message. Like, it's just, you know, here we are, like yeah. he, he took us there. So, you know, one of the things that I see with uh, new college students trying to engage in college level research is they feel really overwhelmed. And, you know, we have all kinds of pockets of content that we buy and, you know, 70 databases and books and eBooks. And um, you can tell students that have done work in high school, even as they transition over, still feel overwhelmed. And I, I don't know if you have any tips or thoughts about, you know, how do we guide students to good sources? How do we help them manage this, this overflow of information? Right. Well, I, I think that it's, you know, sometimes kids, you know, and these are the ones that who've had the experience of using databases with a lot of guidance, um, even, even, even with databases. So let's say, oh, okay, I only use databases, so it's got to be all good, right? Um, it doesn't really work that way. And what we will have to work really hard at with students in source selection, a lot of the time is distinguishing between sort of reference overviews and everything else. Um, and they are, I find that this is a real weak link for student learning, even at the high school level, that, you know, they'll, they'll, whether they, they visit a website or they visit a database, that's not really the problem. The problem is they need to look for in-depth analysis and content. And they tend to look for, they tend to gravitate towards very superficial, easy overviews in a handful of paragraphs that's easy to digest. So sometimes I tell them the litmus test is if there is more deep content on Wikipedia than on your topic than there is on the source you use, then you need to do a rethink around that. And that's not, you know, but, but that's the reality. There's a lot of depth in Wikipedia. And so what we really want them to start looking for is of depth of, of, of perspective and for different an analysis and for multiple different viewpoints and to be able to sort of, um, look for the intersection and the distinctions among those resources. And that's where I find that uh, helping get them feedback on their bibliography is actually a really valuable thing. It's not about periods and commas, which a lot of people think, seem to think it is. It's really just question, you know, hey, where have you been? What you finding? Uh, kind, of a, kind of an exercise. And that's where I find that a lot of the new lessons that we're developing are around um, getting kids to think critically about their source selection. You know, one of the issues is that so many of the, the topics that really matter that you want to research are difficult, right? And so if you have assignments where you're reading five or six sources as an assignment, that's not enough to get to go deep. And and so you you are hitting the superficial sort of skewed view just kind of by default in so many times. Right. And superficial is what we do when we don't have time. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a process that takes a lot of time. And if across the scope of the school, if the time necessary to do the process well isn't built into how courses are constructed, how units are constructed, how a daily schedule is constructed, then we're all racing to do the minimum viable work to create the minimum viable product, product and then kind of, you know, wash our hands and move on. Right. We don't, we don't give a lot of time to revel in the new learning that comes through inquiry. Right. 
And and that is the beauty of inquiry. And sometimes I think that is it be, it's so unfortunate that the most important piece is is often lost and not necessarily at the forefront of student learning uh, goals with that with that process. They just want the grace. Yes. And right. In, inquiry, really, when you come down to it, inquiry is students learning how to learn rather than learning what the teacher thinks is important. If there's one thing students need to know, it's how to ignite their own interests and pursue those interests independently. Right. If we're not invested in inquiry, we're not really teaching. And sometimes the things that are the easiest to grade are those superficial things that don't get to that end goal, right? So are the, right. the quotation and comes, marks and commas comes, in the right place, but... Right. Right. And the, you know, the things that, that's the easiest to grade, it's easiest because it's fastest. Right. It keeps coming back to time as a critical element to all of this. Yeah. Going all the way back to print versus all the other possible form, <laughs> format deliveries. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's just to bring this to a, um, an end, I think a, a, a thing that struck me was the importance of mindfulness that you talk about uh, toward the end of the book. And I think this connects through a lot of the ideas that we've already touched on. Um, but could you help us unpack uh, this idea of being mindful and especially connect, connecting this to being a good um, digital citizen? Definitely. I think the, the link is, is really important. Um, whether, you, whether you're using the term emotional intelligence or you're talking about social emotional learning, it is a huge piece of our information literacy. Um, Michelle and I have both often quoted Brooke Gladstone from um, NPR, WNYC, in the On the Media program. She said that in the final analysis, bias confirmation has nothing to do with thinking and everything to do with feeling. And it's important for us to, to remember this because when we encounter a source of information that evokes an emotional response in us, at that moment, we have to check ourselves because once our emotions are elevated, our critical thought is suppressed. And that's how disinformation slips in when we're not fully attuned critically to what we're consuming. Um, when I encounter an image or a video or I'm even just reading a written story and I realize that I'm becoming emotionally invested in it, I automatically pause. I'm agitated. I take a break and I take a meta moment just to regulate so I can go back and re-engage and be sure that I'm asking the critical questions I should be asking as I'm consuming the information. And it's the being conscious of the space between the stimulus and our response to it that's that's so important. I, I tell students that when I was in high school back in the in the mid-1980s, we passed notes in class, but more often we would slip notes into the vents of each other's lockers as we walked down the hallway. <laughs> and mindfulness was built into that process because if I had an encounter with someone, that's my stimulus. And I write my notes, that's my response. I can't deliver that response until I have walked down the hallway to that person's locker. And that 90 seconds or that two minutes, that's the time I need to reevaluate what I'm about to do, whether I'm doing it consciously or subconsciously. That was that built-in meta moment. And when we live in a world of quick likes and reposts and, and comments, we don't naturally organically include that reflective space. And so we need to choose to create it. 
And that's where the digital citizenship improves. And that's where the, the intelligence about what we're reading or consuming improves. That was a great answer, Jackie. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I have nothing to add. I am leaving it right there. <laughs> um, the idea with the, uh, the, book, the Brooke Gladstone quote with the emotions, I think that's so fantastic. It reminds me of a quote from um, Charlie Kaufman, who's a, you know, the screen, a screenwriter, right? He was on um, Terry Gross's show, and he was talking about fiction, but he said the fiction that we love isn't the fiction that gives us new ideas. The fiction we love are the things that help us see things that we already believe in in new ways, that we, it touches our lives in a way, but it has to, has to be something that's already there. I, and I don't have his exact wording, but it, to me, it was like the greatest encapsulation of what the research process is. It's not just like right. connecting with something new. It's connecting with something that is inside of you that you didn't know was there. And now you see the world in a new way. And I thought it was so powerful. And I mean, it, he was talking about it in a fiction context, but I think it definitely translates over. And I feel like that's sort of, I mean, that's exactly what you're kind of saying here with uh, that emotion is interlaced with the cognitive side of, of what we're doing. Right. And, and that idea that I now know something that I didn't know before, the world never is the same. Once you know something new, you can't go back to unknow it. And when you know this new thing, you now are empowered to act on it. And that action is a choice of what to act and whether to act. So knowing something is really powerful. Knowing something thoroughly is critical. Uh, Jackie and Michelle, thank you both uh, for your time and doing this. This has been fun and just fantastic. Um, if listeners wanted to connect with you online, uh, where would they find you? Well, on Twitter, I am at Ms. J. Whiting, M-S-J-W-H-I-T-I-N-G. And my blog is jwbeyondthestacks.blogspot.com. And I am on Twitter at M-L-U-H-T-A-L-A. H is in the weird spot. And my blog is bibliotech, T-E-C-H, dot me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Troy. You. Circulating Ideas is produced by me, Steve Thomas, in the suburbs of Atlanta. Thanks to Troy Swanson for filling in with this great interview. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work, Troy's place of work, or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. Help others find this show by leaving a rating or a review on iTunes or, again, your podcast app of choice. You can follow the show on Twitter at Circ Ideas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.